Welcome to Tales from the Dance Floor, a podcast exploring the lives and times of people from all walks of life who followed their passions and made careers out of DJing, producing, parties, dance culture and the music industry. I'm Phil Morse from Digital DJ Tips. Let's get started. I'd like to welcome my friend Dan Burick to Tales from the Dance Floor. Hello, Dan. Hey, Phil. How you doing, buddy? Very good. So listen, we've got a lot to get through. You've got an amazing story. Tell the world where you are. Um, well, right now I am currently sat in Los Angeles, California. Um, it's about quarter past nine in the morning for me here um, so that we could liaise at a reasonable hour for both of us. Um, I do appreciate that. That's very. You're very welcome. And you are in Los Angeles because... Um, I now partners in a company over here and we supply music primarily for advertising, but also film and TV and some computer games. And that's essentially what, what we're doing now. Yeah. So there's, there's nowhere better in the world to be than uh, in LA for that kind of thing, right? For that kind of thing and for lots of other things too. Um, I, I love being here. I really do. <laughs> so we can tell from your accent uh, <laughs> that you are not from there. Uh, where are you from, Dan? Originally, I'm I'm from London. Well, actually, originally grew up in just south of London in Surrey. Um, but then as soon as I sort of hit my mid-teenage years and just, you know, decided to uh, venture into London and spend most of my time there and, you know, early adult life. And yeah, it was all about London for me. So, so your job and let's 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 get the the kind of cards on the table your career yeah. from that time from kind of leaving home and starting to starting to make your way in the world what 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 path have you taken what what the kind of main areas that you've worked in between between then and now the main areas well <laughs> there really haven't been areas um it's been an area and it's all been music involved um okay it's been from you know, it's been DJing and it has been production and composition. Um, that's pretty much it, unless you count working in a video shop for a while. Um, we, I did that whilst I was actually DJing. Uh, but this is another story if you want to go chronologically. Um, yeah, working in a video shop. And oh, and I worked in Tandy for a, for a bit. Okay. <laughs> God, rest in peace, Tandy, eh? Indeed. So, and even radio so- shop now. Yeah. So, so, all right then. So your career, if you like, let's call it a career because you certainly ended up in LA in a company making music for films and adverts and so on. So that's uh, a lot of people sounds like an absolute dream uh, journey so far, but your career has always been in music. Yeah. But apart from the fact that you were working in a video shop when you were DJing earlier on, (laughs) was there anything that pointed towards ending up in LA scoring for for the, the stuff you do now? Well, it's kind of, without wanting to get into a really boring life story, LA is somewhere that I've always wanted to be. And I have no idea why. Um, well, no, I do I do have an idea why. And maybe it actually does link back a little bit to the video shop. Are you, when I put, you know, and keeping in mind, I was 16 when I worked in the video shop. So yeah. I wasn't DJing professionally, but I used to run parties with um, a guy called Andy McIntyre. And it, they were kind of a a, a, a 
machine for me to do live gigs as well with the music that I was producing at the time. But um, yeah, we used to basically throw illegal raves and this is, wow, this is 30 years ago. So uh, yeah. And they just used to be for our friends and, and uh, you know, we never used to make any real money out of them. Although we used to have a couple of big guys going around with a bucket saying, Hey, (laughs) contributions were gratefully received. Um, And then uh, yeah, we actually, so I would, obviously work in a video shop at the same time to supplement that. But um, yeah, we eventually got raided and they took all of our records and stuff. We were doing a party in Leatherhead and the M25 mob found out about it and uh, blocked the entire Junction 9 of the M25. So that's a good way to go out, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And we decided that we were going to probably try and do things a little bit more legitimately. I was When I actually found out, I was going to get there late because I was actually working in the video shop that night and I didn't finish till 10. So I got a phone call saying from Andy saying, they've taken all my records, they've taken all of your records and uh, shut us down because there are, there's a tale, three hour long tale back on the M25. <laughs> it's a great story. So, so the kind of early days of promoting illegal raves and for those people listening outside of the UK or not aware of the UK club culture, the M25 is the motorway or freeway, if you like, that goes around London and was very, very famous for being all the illegal raves back in the early early 90s and late 80s were within kind of a stone's throw of the M25 because yeah. it was easy to get to them, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the other thing was is that all around the M25, there was pirate radio stations all around it. So what would happen is they would pick a particular rave that they'd found out about, and all of the pirate radio stations would say, M25 mob, that's where we're going tonight. So it could be anywhere. Um, and all of the stations would put that out, and so you'd get basically the entire, you know, everybody who lived around the M25 and around London would would then descend upon that particular party for the night. Incredible times. And also Orbital, the band, got their name from the fact that it's the Orbital motorway around London. Again, a little fact. I didn't know that. That's fantastic. There we go. There we go. A little fact for our our listeners, filling in the gaps in their rave knowledge. A little fact for Um, the guest as well. I didn't know that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there we go. So interesting that you should say uh, as a, I guess you're just around getting out your teenage years at this point, right? Um, you're, You're interested in playing your own music at these raves as much as DJing, right? Yeah, I mean, that kind of goes back. So I should probably go back even further, and it sounds kind of cheesy, but I used to have this fascination with turntables when I was like an infant. So in the morning before, you know, the first thing I would do when I got up in the morning is I would go downstairs and and, uh, my mum had this, um, this old 78, uh, you know, uh, uh, record player. That was a wind-up record player. And I had the fascination with the turntable, uh, you know. And I used to put 78 records that we had on it and I would play them and then I would try changing the speed of them. And this is no lie. It sounds so like, it sounds like the beginning of some weird film. But I, 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 you know, I also used to put soldiers on there and basically spin things around in it as well. But quite often it was for playing, you know, I used to, play records and I would do that forever to the point where I remember I put 
one of my mum's closest friends carpenters album which was obviously a 33 onto a 78 player and it just that you know it had one of those old needles that literally looked like a knitting needle and it just tore the whole record up and i remember <laughs> she was mortified by the whole thing and i had to go and apologize <laughs> but I, I was literally five years old and then when I, we had a, we're lucky enough to have a piano and when I used to play music, I ended up getting piano lessons and I didn't like them. And when I, when my mum asked me why I didn't like them, I said, because I just don't like playing other people's music, i.e. performing or trying to play. I like wanted to sit in front of a piano and, and, and make something original. That's what really excited me. But by the same token, you know, I enjoyed... Uh, I enjoyed playing and listening to other people's music, you know, but I didn't want, it was important for me to create my own as well. I wanted to be part of it, if that makes Mm. sense. So an interesting mix of early influences going on there. It's funny, I was talking to Ferry Corsten last week. Oh, very very cool. Very podcast. Yeah. And he was saying, you know, it's not very cool being a, a geek and DJing's a kind of escape from that. It's <laughs> so true. You, you can, it kind of validates it. Yeah, I'm a huge, huge nerd. I'm a huge nerd, uh, you know, and <laughs> it's so true. I, I mean, you know, you just, there is no chance of me being cool if I hadn't been a DJ for, for so long. Yeah, you know. it's, it's a very common story. Yeah. But, uh, but okay, so this is, this is good stuff. And so from very, very early on, there was this kind of wish to make your own music and also this fascination with playing other people's, which kind of is a DJ producer by any other terms, isn't it? Um, yeah. But when did you when did you have that moment? I think we've all got one where you you just realise music has got the power to change everything. Well, I, mean, I guess it wasn't messing around with 78s, right? Um, was it uh, school disco or or just... I don't know. Where was the kind of first moment you can think of where you thought, wow, this is this is a gateway into something big? I remember being in a field in Gloucester when I was about 16 at an illegal rave. It was vast and um, it was a big thing going on. I remember it was really muddy and uh, it was one of those kind of raves so don't ask me to for too many details but um we can fill in we can fill in the gaps yeah yeah that's it yeah use your imagination um but i remember cubic 22 night in motion came on and that absolutely blew me away i mean at the time i was more into sort of rock I guess I go through phases, but at that time I was more into rock and somebody persuaded me to come along. I was getting more into the sort of, as it was called, hardcore scene. And it's hard, it's, it's, you have to watch when you say hardcore because that means different things in different countries, but it does indeed. Yeah. yeah. So like the, 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 the breakbeat, essentially, if you, you know, you can, you can overarchingly call it prodigy kind of stuff, but way more basic. And yes, um, it's the kind of mix between kind of very early techno and Belgian drum machine stuff and all yeah that kind of and break beats and you know that yeah. that kind of thing so but it was cubic 22 night in motion and i remember there was that piano bit and then it goes party time and this guitar i don't know what the dj did it was like i'm, I'm getting the goosebumps now just thinking about it <laughs> the, I, I don't know what he did it felt like he just you know took it from six to twenty and turn the bass up and the it just I, I remember literally just having my mind blown and going <laughs> i want to do this a lot but mine was in a very tiny club called deville's in manchester and it was it was a shitty little boring indie club right and they were playing some rem song and we just weren't feeling it 
but we didn't know there was a club next door and you literally paid to get into both of them. Right. So we opened the door and this wall of heat and sweat and sound <laughs> and light hit us. And we were like, what the? Yeah. And uh, yeah, then kind of the dominoes all fell in about 20 minutes flat and we suddenly felt like you. I got home and I thought, shit, there's all this music to discover. Yeah. I didn't know anything about any of this. Yeah. I'm like 21 at the time. It was fantastic. It's um, it's a it's it's the most wonderful adventure to go on. It's wonderful, and you know, I have to say, without you know, I, I, I mean, Spotify, what what a platform! I'm so glad people have adopted it because you can find some incredible music. I mean, I you know, I, I get very passionate about sharing tracks that I find on there that have had like one thousand plays, and I'm like, why? Why has this had a thousand plays? Listen, this is an amazing piece of music. And we are so lucky now that it, I say that and I, I I feel like I'm jumping way ahead, but I loved the days of crate digging. I loved it. I love going in and creating, you know, that whole, that whole human traffic kind of going in mm. and knowing the guy behind the counter and being able to say, what have you got, mate? You know, um, and then going into the, into the crates and having a look through. I love all of that, but also I also get the same kick from these days from finding really cool stuff on Spotify and what a amazing platform that is. I think it's, um, I think it's fantastic. As a, the funny thing about those kind of things, before we get back to you and your, your early DJing life, yes. I think it's that, you you only appreciate them when you didn't have them. Yeah. So coming from vinyl and coming from scarcity, you kind of appreciate what it means to have all the world's music at your fingertips. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I get a sense that if you grow up with that, that isn't there. Like a, like, like a, like a, you know, poor parents making it. It's disposable, isn't it? Making, making some money and getting kids and the kids never know what it was yeah. like not to have yeah. that kind of background. And um, yeah, I think disposable is the word. But anyway, Dan, we're, we're moving off because I want to get back to you <laughs> in your early days. Okay. And you are um, kind of deciding that illegal raves are maybe not the way forward for you. Yeah. Um, but you're hooked on making music and you're hooked on playing other people. So what happened next? So, um I was, uh, I did the DJ and then, okay, so I was still into a hardcore or whatever we're going to call it, that breakbeat sort of prodigy kind of sound. And then um, I was in a shop buying some records and I was also making that stuff as well with various different local artists. And I bumped into a guy called Justin who ended up becoming one of my bestest friends for, for a very, very, very long time. And, um, he, and basically we ended up hitting it off and having a chat and he was like, well, I'm not really into this. I'm into house. And I was like, okay, well, you know, show me. He goes, Oh, I've got decks because we'd, we'd, we'd had hours taken away from Nick. us yeah. so, <laughs> by the police. And um, we'd sort of let that, me and Andy had kind of sort of let that go. So we weren't in touch so much. He was the guy with the decks. So anyway, I would go around to Justin's house and he would just play me all this house music and, um, you know, really early, strictly, uh, rhythm stuff, uh, network record stuff, um, you know, Sassol, when Sassol, you know, was at the tail end of sort of being existing and trying to do, you know, early Steve Silk Hurley and, and that kind of thing. And when he was working with all the Sassol stuff. And uh, I really, really, really got into it. And um, I, 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 I love that, you know, it's, it's pretty standard, you know, just jumping from one music genre to another and deciding that I'm going to adopt it and, and love it. You know, it's a very, it's like a, I, I can, an, 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 an addict's attitude to, but to, <laughs> but to music, you know. So, um, yeah, just sort of got right into that. And 
at the same time, so I was about 18, at the same time I used to go down to sort of like a local club and uh, get myself in there and uh, it was in Kingston and um, I got friendly with a DJ down there and I told him that I used to I used to DJ as well and he offered for me to be his warm-up and um, his name, I'm going to name drop him, his name was Charlie Osborne um, and uh I ended up following, you know, I didn't drive at the time either. So it wasn't even like, you know, I used to drive him around. He would drive me. I think about this now and like the amount of crap I put my my warm-ups through over the years. And uh, they would always have to drive me because I would always be having a drink. Um, <laughs> but he used to drive and we would do a place in St. Albans and we would do another place in Kingston. Um, so it was two or three days a week uh, for literally no money. And um, he kind of taught me the ropes. But what was cool is that then, because I was with him, his brother was also a DJ. And you'll probably know his brother. His brother's now, I mean, you know, this is so long ago. His brother's a radio DJ now called John Osborne. Okay. And John, uh, Charlie was amazing and really, you know, gave me all of the all of the sort of breaks. But I probably feel like I learned the most from John. And that was because he absolutely did not give me an an inch he would just you know it would be like a student night on a wednesday and there would be nobody in there and i'd be wanting to play house music and he'd say no i want you to play like warm-up party stuff and i'll be like but there's no one here he was he would just be like if you don't want to do it i will get somebody else to do it so go home or get on with it you've got boxes of records there what's wrong with you and so you know grudgingly I would go over and try and find, you know, music that I knew that I, I, I couldn't play music that he would want to play later either. So I was trying to play party stuff whilst folks were coming in. But what was great about John also was that he was, uh, he was very up on current music at the time. You know, he was really, I think he went, ended up at Capital Gold, which doesn't sound like, you know, somebody who would be up in their music. But at the time he was really forward thinking and he was into mixing and he was into all of these things, you know, um that made him very cutting edge and he was hugely experienced and i i learned a, a, an, an immense amount from him um and that was so i ended up then doing three or four club you know three or four nights and then long story short it's already too long then i finally got my own night and i started doing that i was on a student night on a thursday and then it was really successful and off the back of that i got a ton more gigs and then that was it. I mean, you know, I was, I was resident at Hammersmith Palais for a, for a long time and that was an incredible experience, you know. So this is the point where it became proper job, right? Yeah. Sorry. This is the, this is the, this is the important thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I went, well, actually there is a, uh, there really is a profound moment for this. In fact, actually, and this is a pretty cool story. I have to sort of omit all of the names because a lot of these people are still working. <laughs> quite often the best stories. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to omit all of the names. So I was working at a particular club and there were other DJs there. And this new, I was kind of the second string DJ. And I'd brought in another guy as the warm up as well. So there were, you know, there were kind of, there, there were, one main DJ, second string, and the and the sort of warm up, and I was the second string. But 
the new DJ, the main DJ who'd come in, who was what we used to call one of the big four, we didn't particularly see eye to eye in regards to how how DJing should be. And also on a Saturday night, the, I put forward this proposal that I wanted to play house music for an hour on a Saturday. And the manager said, love it, do it. And obviously it was the prime slot on a Saturday and he did not like that. So he took under his wing the, and I get it, you know, he took under his wing the warm up who I brought on as well. And we had another club opening up in the town that was going to destroy us pretty much. So all of a sudden we had three DJs on, on a Saturday night and we knew we were about to take a hit. On a couple of the other nights, there were there were other DJs working, and I'm sorry, this seems like a long story, but believe you me, the setup's great. And I was working with them on the other nights, on like a Monday and a Wednesday, but the weekend was the sort of the the, the, the main gig. But we had a big meeting, and the area manager comes in and says, "We're going to take a real hit. I don't really see how we are going to continue to have three DJs as residents here." And the main DJ then piped up in this meeting and said, well, I'm training the warm-up, blah, 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 blah. He's really come under my wing and has basically kind of set me up to get pushed out. So I'm sat there looking very forlorn. And um, one of the other DJs, who was at the time the resident of the Hammersmith Palais, um, and also one of the sort of most respected DJs within the business at the time, um, he let this other this other DJ, you know, say his piece about the warm up and about how great he was and let me kind of feel very sorry for myself. And this other DJ piped up and said, well, I think Dan's outgrown this place. I want him with me up at Hammersmith Palais, you know, three and a half thousand people every night. Yeah, no problem. You're coming with me, Dan. <laughs> I was just like, what? What do you mean? Wow. <laughs> I never knew that was going to happen. And, you know, him and another friend and another DJ who was my friend had set this whole thing up. And, uh, you know, for me to to you know and i moved away from that club that club ended up closing down whilst i was taken up to the hammersmith palais which you know djing for baby d and massive attack and three and a half thousand people on a saturday night it was insane and off of the back of that you know i was still doing music and we were getting signed to ministry of sound and it was just an incredible time and off of the back of that i then got you know other gigs elsewhere because yeah, it was it was it was an interesting time. That was that's that was probably really when that particular moment where it was kind of make or break in regards to it continuing to be a career. Or yeah, it, it sounds exactly yeah, it sounds exactly like that. So, at what point then um, did the next step happen? If you like, so this is kind of happened and you're kind of you've made it i i guess in in that sense you're you're getting paid it's a career it's it's you're getting the gigs you want you're playing in front of big audiences meeting your heroes and all that kind of thing how long did that period last and what was the next big change um well i mean probably that lasted for maybe let me think five years for four or five years and that I was there and the the DJ who'd got me in up there, who was one of the main guys, just he went and I was ended I ended up being the main guy there. So mm-hmm. I was there for a long time and then I got an offer from uh, a a friend of mine who who had worked at Hammersmith and he was going to open his his own club um up in Romford and he was like, Look, I am going to it's going to be all house music and we want you to come and do it. And I was like, wow, okay, that sounds fun. 
And so I went up there and it was absolute debauchery. I mean, it was insane. It was just insane. Great times. But uh, it was crazy up there. And But over that period as well, um, I'd got together with a guy called Matt Frost, who was my partner for a long time, for seven years. And in 19, we were remixing and doing all kinds of stuff all over that period. Uh, and working with ministry very closely. We worked with, uh, with Ministry of Sound for a long time. It was around that time I met Steve. And um, Steve, being, Steve being our, our, uh, my business partner here at Digital Exactly. Video, very, fact finder. Your yeah. very own Mr. Steve Cagnetto. And yeah. um, so we were, we were producing stuff with them and, and working with Steve quite closely, actually. And um, it was over that period we then had a... Uh, we put out a bootleg in 1997 of um, that we did in four hours, me and Matt. And it was just, you know, we weren't, we just kind of heard a bass line and heard a vocal and, and we're like, oh, they work well. And then we put some piano on it and we went to Essential Distribution and put a thousand out on the Thursday. And then by the Friday, we had them calling us saying we need another 2000. And we were like, what? And then I vividly remember Steve calling me, Steve Cagnetto calling me. He was out with Judge Jules on a Saturday night and he called me and Matt and said, boys, they're playing your track in all three rooms at the ministry at the same time. (laughs) What a brilliant, brilliant story. And we were like, oh, shoot, this has gone crazy. And then... I think it was on the Tuesday we got seven lawsuits against us. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Dan, it's been worth having you on for a couple of the stories already. What was the track? It was um, it was Lisa Stansfield. People hold on, and we did the Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. We just we basically put a, a professional widow baseline under under. A, people hold on and put some keys on it it was yeah. I, I i say it a little bit more flippantly than 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 what was involved it was it was cleverer than that but it just you know we i remember it i remember i remember it very very well and actually it, until this day i never knew that you were dirty oh, really? Scoundrels. you're joking so, no that was me for years you know so we remixed everything but i want to make this very clear when we did that track we got the professional widow baseline off a promo we had no idea this was not coattailing we had no idea that was going to be a big track we just really liked it and we had it on promo yeah. and then we were like oh lisa stansfield goes over the top of it and everybody thinks all oh, that came out and then they put that out but that happened they ended up coming out at the same time because we were in so many legal wranglings about it and arist oh you know it's another story altogether but um yeah but yeah there was a phone call from steve and that was that was a very interesting time and off of the back of that we got to we we ended up sort of DJing all over the place and DJing Bagley's and Ministry and you name it around the world and we pretty much did every single big London club at one time or another in, at, at the time um, and that went on till 2001 uh, where I had some personal stuff going on and we decided to to sort of call it a day so and I took a sabbatical so yeah okay well let's talk about that so you've you've had ten years of probably more than ten years of kind of like working your way into a position where you're right at the heart of the UK Raven house scene. Mm. Uh, and then you decide to take a break for, for your own reasons. Uh, and you've always been in music, right? Yeah. So, so what happened next? What does a man do who's, <laughs> who's had that success and suddenly finding themselves 
And it actually was quite a dip, wasn't it, anyway? Yeah. The, and this was this, kind of a, yeah. was kind of a gap. Not much happened for this, a few years. This is the thing. We It got to 2001. And in 2001, we were working to pay the bills, you know. And we'd done, we'd done super great. You know, we'd worked we'd work with everybody. And we were still working with some great people. But it was... It, it felt like house, as so often goes in house music, you always know when it's about to die because as soon as tech house becomes cool, you know, there's no more left in it anymore. <laughs> it's happened, many it's times, happened time it? and time again. And, you know, I love a bit of tech house, but, you know, as soon as it comes in, you know, like, this is the cool thing. Oh, dear. That's the end of house music in the commercial market. So everyone's no one's going to be making any money now for a, for a good long time. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, so... Yeah, and it was that kind of vibe. It was that that sort of crossover sort of house had gone and it was more about tech house and being super cool. And we were doing some cooler stuff as well, but we would we'd had a lot of success with our with our record labels. We'd had a whole bunch of record labels and we'd licensed literally every track barring one, I think, and we put out 30 or 40 releases and Devil May Care and Lemon and Lime and those those are all our labels and Spiral Sounds, I think. I can't even remember the name of them now. But um, yeah, and around that time in 2001, I had some personal issues crop up with my, my mother falling very ill and and it just, I was like, I'm not loving this anymore. I was still DJing. I was still DJing a lot, um, you know, at least you know, three or four times a week. I had some residences. Uh, don't ask me to remember exactly where they were at that time. But um, yeah, and so I, I was DJing all of the time. I didn't take a sabbatical ever from DJing, but I took a sabbatical from from club music in 2001. And then in 2002, I came back and I made a promise to myself that I really wanted to do music more for, for picture, um, but I would continue to do house music. So I ghosted a lot on various for various different people and for various different artists and i couldn't not do club stuff and because of course i was djing as well so i would when i was hearing something whilst i was djing i was like well this excites me now i'm gonna have to make something like this you know yeah so so interesting that you ghost ghosted when for people who don't know what ghosted means Mm -hmm. it's when you basically you kind of do the hard work without the without the (laughs) uh what's the word recognition i guess yeah. the recognition is kind of sold to someone yeah, else that's it you become a bit of a whore <laughs> yeah i mean i guess a nice way of putting it would be you know a lot of people got into ghosting from being engineers didn't they in Correct, studios yeah. back when you had yeah. to have a studio mm-hmm. and they knew how to use it and kind of realized that they were half the talent um, but anyway i'm digressing now mm-hmm. um so you're still kind of like i wouldn't say low level but you're still kind of doing this stuff but going through the motions a little bit i guess at times and deciding that you want to be in music for picture so, um, Dan, we spent a very, very happy 40 minutes here just talking about the rave scene in the UK. Which we're going to have to accelerate, I assume. <laughs> we are going to. We've got, we've got good 15 years of your life to get through, and we've got um, 10 minutes. So I want to kind of, like, talk about the transition, the pivot from DJing to, uh, I don't know what you, the exact words would be, composition, scoring, what do you call, what do you call making music for, for film and for for adverts well, and they, so on. they were the... all, always very much in tandem and i felt that staying on the pulse of of music through djing actually really really helped um in regards to that it wasn't a question of either or it is kind of now but that was that was by choice um yeah but at the time through 2001 right the way up till you know 2015 
it would they were always in tandem you know i i, I dj'd regularly there was never when i was less than two nights a week as a resident whether it be even from sort of like a small bar which it, it's crazy you know i did i was seven years at gatecrasher um so you know and you just get to a point i think in your career where you're like you know what i want something a bit more personal i want to i want a small room now i want a small room with possibly some regulars you know who know what i'm gonna mm. who know what i'm gonna play but they always worked in tandem because i felt that one fed the other um, and it kept me on the pulse of, of how it... And what kind of stuff were you doing at the time? So you got we, we kind of understand the DJ stuff, but when it came to um, music for picture, what, what were you doing? What, what are two or, two or three things that stand out from that period? Um, I mean, I did, I did a, a lot of commercials, everything from, you know, from Nutella. I had a big Nutella commercial that went, that, that a lot of people heard, right the way to feature films. So... Um, I did, uh, you know, uh, the last feature film I did was for, for oh, not last, for, for last film before last was for Lionsgate. It was a sort of quite big action film. Um, mm-hmm. But you see, they've all got sort of electronic influences and that kind of thing. One thing that you might quite like was that the last feature film I did, um, I worked on the score with, with kind of with Liam Howlett um, from The Prodigy. So these things mm-hmm. all go full circle. Um, he supplied a, a, a track for the movie and um, I reworked it and we kind of worked backwards and forwards with some emails about how he wanted to see it because it was ingrained within the score. So, um, yeah, so it's funny how things go full circle when we were talking about Prodigy, you know, in the, in the early yeah. 90s and then a couple of years ago working on a, on a feature film with him. Um, it was only in... 2015 when I came to LA I've done a little bit of DJing over here but I felt that and maybe this is a question for you uh, maybe I'll stop myself there <laughs> <laughs> well no I mean it, it begs the question you know why uh, and again it's, it's funny to the correlations I mean you and I have had very different careers and done done kind of different things within music but I left the UK because I knew I couldn't get out of what I was doing unless I did yeah and what I was doing was promoting and DJing. Yeah. I knew it was going to continue to be too easy to do that forevermore. Uh, and that was why I left. It's why I moved away to the Mediterranean and me being a, an Ibiza lover yeah. and a lover of that kind of yeah. vibe. It was only one place I was going to go. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, and actually, it was throwing myself in at the deep end somewhere new that led to digital DJ tips and realizing I enjoy teaching. And, <laughs> um, you know, I want to know, I do want to know, this is the question, what, what, was was it something about the timing of the move to LA? Was it always the plan that, you know, I'm going to get out and that's where I'm going to go? What was the kind of thinking when it happened? I think literally the, it's, it's a great question. And there is parity here as well, Phil. And it, it, I think literally the first thing I said was I always wanted to be in LA and <clears throat> I applied to UCLA to, to do film direction when I was like 18. Couldn't, couldn't afford the you know tuition, even though I got accepted. The opportunity arose after I did my last feature film, which was back in, after I did the, sorry, the feature film before last, which was about in 2015, um, to, I thought it felt like the right time to just investigate. It was actually, I say the right time, it was probably my last, it was like, okay, if you're going to do it, you've got to go and try now. And um, so I came over here and my idea was I was pretty buoyant financially so my idea was i had meetings with with 
with sort of Zimmer's camp and Danny Elfman's camp and all of that. And I was just going to offer myself services as a, as a to shadow, you know, and mm-hmm. I was still DJing at the time and the places where I was DJing were like, it's very cool. Well, I kind of transitioned. I sort of opened up an agency. So all of my DJ friends and all the people, you know, all of the gigs that I got offered, I would start passing on to my friends. So when I needed stuff filling, I would get my, my agency to fill it. So I, Probably that's a big thing that I didn't mention. Um, so when I needed some time off, so I just filled my gigs with with the folks who I trusted. Um, yeah. So I came over here and I promised myself that I was going to sort of be as open to experience as possible. Um, and literally before I got a chance to have a meeting with uh, any of those folks, <laughs> I have a, had a friend over here and we used to throw advertising jobs backwards and forwards to each other a guy called uh, Jason Benier and Ian Dulcimer. And uh, I, whenever I was in LA, I would come and see Jay and we would hang out and have a cup of coffee and just catch up and see what was going on and, you know, talk, put the world to rights. And I sat down with him and we were having a chat and he had this sort of pensive expression on the pretty much the entire conversation when I told him what I was doing. And he let me get my words out. Uh, he then said, huh, why don't you forget about all of that and we've just had a great year and we know how you roll and we love what you do. And do you want to come and work with us? And I was like, well, that wasn't the plan at all. He was like, come and meet Ian properly. Cause I didn't know Ian so well. We sat down and we had a chat and we thought we'd try it out. I had to go back and tell the wife that I was going to go away again. <laughs> and, uh, I kind of just kept my gigs rolling with the, with the folks I'd put in there temporarily. And uh, that was four and a half years ago. And um, I'm still here, and the company has gone from strength to strength. It's it's insane. Yeah, it's been a crazy time. I've DJed a couple of times. Obviously, my gigs have now gone. Um, but I had to surrender DJing, um, which was difficult in the UK financially for a start. I made a very good living out of out of DJing. Um, so I kind of suddenly had a whole – LA is a very expensive place to live. Uh, more expensive than London by a long way. Um, and also I felt, Phil, honestly, that I didn't want to be the guy who, I didn't want to be the old guy in a room full of 20-year-olds. And I wanted to go out whilst I was still relevant and cool. And I'm not saying that anybody who's who who is older is not, because if you find yourself a niche, Look at somebody like Norman Jay or Pete Tong, you know, or or Tiesto for that matter. You know, they're they're all older dudes, but you know that kind of specialist niche had sort of gone, and I knew that I wanted to focus more, and I was worried about my hearing, and I didn't have, I wasn't getting those elation moments as much as I was, so I was like, okay. I'm going to go and really pursue this instead. And I'm glad I did. But that is not to say that I haven't been to a couple of pool parties here. I've become really good friends with Todd Edwards over here. And he's taken me to a few parties. And I get, I'm just like, oh my God, I so want to be doing this right now. I so (laughs) want to be behind the decks. And you know, the other DJs I'm listening to him, I was like, dude, come on, I will destroy you. We were talking about yesterday how you just cannot go to parties when you're a DJ unless you are a on the guest list, b in the booth, and preferably c. Absolutely, play, right? absolutely. I, I, I do. I, it sounds like a 
terrible snobbery, but I can't be. I like to be. I can be on the dance floor as long as I know I've got somewhere to go afterwards. Does that make sense? So I can go out to the dance floor, <laughs> do my thing, and then know I can go back to my drink, which is behind the decks. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think I think that's shared by a lot of DJs. So so it's a bit like being a professional footballer, isn't it? You know, you know, you you know, you have a shelf life. Yeah but you're never going to get those days back of actually being on the field and playing. And I think it comes with the territory with DJing. I think so. I think so to a degree. Like I say, you know, you can find yourself a niche and good luck to you. And my, my mantra really in regards to DJing is I will DJ because I've DJed a couple of times over here. My mantra for DJing is now I'll DJ, but on my terms. So like, I, you know, if you want me to come and do what I do or we have a discussion beforehand and we agree that I'm going to play this, then that's how it's going to be, you know, and I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll do something great around that because it excites me too. Um, okay. So, so Dan, I wanted to ask you the big question really around moving around to the other side yeah. of the world. I mean, I, I live a couple of hours flight away from everyone I've ever mm-hmm. known. You're a long, long, long way away from oh. home. Now, how hard was that move? personally uh what what affected you that you thought might maybe wouldn't uh, and what was easier i think people would be interested to hear what it's like to make such a big shift well um okay so that's a, that's a very interesting question if i'd have known how hard it was going to be i might not have done it honestly but it was only yeah. because i blindly kind of had you know i'm one of these people who just puts their head down and just goes for it but i think the it was what was really hard was it was really hard on my wife so um Mm -hmm. you know i'm married to a wonderful wonderful human being and we've been together for a long time um but we had to spend three years pretty much apart and that was really tough and i was flying backwards and forwards a lot and because of the time difference believe you me eight hours is a sucky time difference 12 hours Mm. is almost easier Eight, eight or nine hours is sucks because, you know, if she was working full time and it sort of just coincided, you know, she was either bleary eyed from the morning in the morning or exhausted in the evening. And it was either yeah. crazy early in the morning for me or I was, you know, I was tired at the end of the day. So that was really tough. And there were so many flights. And when I was flying backwards and forwards, the, you know, you're jet lagged all the time. Um, and it's difficult to, to get your bearings and she's dealing with all the stuff you know, at home and I'm dealing with all the stuff over here, trying to sort of build us something. Um, it was very hard. Uh, however, uh, you know, green cards very hard. We had to really go through the mill for that. It was, it was very difficult and everybody's going to have their own story and it's also very expensive. However, that being said, we now live in a beautiful house. I have, um, amazing partners in an amazing business and she is now running her own little thing and bear in mind we only got our green cards last may last march wow. so so yeah and it's you know what can i tell you we're we're finally after you know i, ha- I got ill last year last year as well um finally after a lot of turbulence for the last three years we've we've found a little bit of peace and it's it's joy it's joyous it's wonderful it's very exciting Okay, so let's look back. Let's kind of draw a big circle around mm-hmm. everything and look back and, and and kind of grab a couple of things out yeah. of it all. Did you leave school with any idea that this was your path? 
any idea at all? Did you get qualifications at school? Were you on a different <laughs> path or was it kind of like, I'm not sure what I'm going to do? I wanted to be a vet. <laughs> I did a level chemistry, biology, maths and statistics. And then I found a recording studio at 16 and somebody signed me and let me be in there. Right. Okay. Yeah. We know all yeah. this. We know all and this. So I <laughs> yeah. wasn't there for a lot of the lessons. So <laughs> I ended up failing all of them. <laughs> Literally all of them, much to my mother's disappointment. So um, yeah. I think I probably knew that it was do or die in regards to music at that point at 16 years old. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's an early time to realize that. And you're still a massive animal lover. I know that because I've spent time with yeah. you. And you're, Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, pets. you know, those intentions for being a vet were all, you know, all about being, you know, all about animals. And, and the, the film direction thing, when I wanted to be a film director, it was kind of really a way of expressing music. So I just felt, yeah. you know, and it was an opportunity to be in Los Angeles. So I was like, okay, if I go to... Rain, yeah, I can yeah. see that. So look, DJ, producer, then suddenly very big producer, um, uh, then suddenly very big DJ, then film scoring, running a DJ agency. So your business head kind of kicked in. You saw the joy of being in another business that uh, was already doing well in in LA. Um, another turn you weren't expecting, mm. I guess. Uh, but So you're obviously not scared to take these opportunities when they jump into your path. But my next question and my final question is, um, we've still got a lot of miles on the clock. Um, and I speak for both of us there because we're both around the same stage yeah. of our of our working lives. What's next, Dan? I mean, are you going to be doing this forever? Are you going to be doing what you do in LA now? Have you got other plans? Uh, is it just kind of, I want 20 years of peace after that lot? What's the, what's the plan next? I think uh, what's wonderful about the people I work with over here is that we are all, we're all very forward-looking. So I think our, our plan is to build this business more. We're all invested in it, which is, you know, we're doing incredibly well already. We're, you know, it, it's amazing how this business has grown. But I think we're going to look at um, moving, not moving. We're going to di diversify as well into other areas, all music creation. Um, we have some things, that very exciting things on the horizon, which I can't say too much about. But, you know, they're, I'll, I'll hint at they're kind of originally there might be more in the direction of where I originally came to Los Angeles. Um, and so I'm, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens now, but it's different. I think it's different now. I'm looking forward to seeing what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life. Does that make sense? Rather than setting things out to sort of to, 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 to make a situation that we're hoping we, we're going to build a company to a point whereby we have more personal time. So we'll be yeah. able to go and so explore. Thinking, uh, we're in uh, like the, the landscape here is just stunning. It's such a vast country. There's so much to see. Um, I want to, you know, I've had my head down for the past four years, really sort of working on it. I hadn't seen a huge amount of it. I'm lucky enough to live close to the sea so we can go and go down to the beach. But I want to invest, investigate some more and, you know, travel and, and spend time with the wife exploring and, you know, and, 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 and that kind of thing, as well as building the business. And I'd like to do some DJ gigs. I really would. I miss it. It never leaves. It, it never leaves. leaves you, does no, it? it never, never does. It never no. does. It never does. Yeah. So if you could, I said that was my last question, but I'm going to just drop oh, one more in before we talk <laughs> over the hour. Um, if you look back, is there anything you would have done differently? Is there anything you think oh, if only if, 
or you know is it just been a roller coaster and you wouldn't change a thing um I try to live my life with no regrets and that's a kind of cheesy thing to say it's true I think you know I always believe I always believe that, you know, if you would have done things one way, then you probably wouldn't be where you are now. So could I have promoted myself a little more when we were doing lots of big stuff? That's what, that was, I, I really shied from press and stuff when, when we were the Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and, and uh-huh. much to the malign of my friends, you know, they were like, are you crazy? You know, you've just got triple platinum album. Well, you know, sorry, a triple platinum single, you know, for, for a job you've worked out, why aren't you shouting about this? And I was just like, I'm not comfortable. I'm, I'm happy here, you know, and I'm happy to sort of be in the background. And maybe I should have done a little bit more. And that, and maybe that might have taken me down a, a different production path. But you know, I think life has to be have trials in it. I think it really does. If you don't set yourself challenges and trials, God, you go stagnant, don't you? Well, I know I would. So, but I'm kind of <laughs> I've I've climbed a lot of mountains and had a. I'm very lucky to have had an incredible rich array of experiences in, in music and all other aspects of my life, you know, but especially in music, music's taken me to some incredible places, some incredible feelings and some incredible geographical locations even, you know, and for that, I am forever thankful. I'm, I guess I'm looking forward to seeing where it's going to take me now, but possibly not too far from home now, <laughs> you know, Home, of course. Home, of course, being LA, well, right? LA or the UK, you know. I still, my soul is still in the in the UK. It'll always be on the streets of London. It's all where it started. I feel, I feel, I feel London's embrace whenever I go back there, and I love that. But I, I love being in LA too. Yeah. Awesome, Dan. Thank you very, very much for sharing your story. It's been awesome hearing it, and even as one of your friends, I've learned stuff about you I didn't know. So. <laughs>